Hey, Fidelity, can I get a second opinion on stocks in the Fidelity app? With Fidelity, it's easy to get an outside opinion from independent experts in a single score. And then? When you're ready, trade U.S. stocks and ETFs with no commissions. That's right. I am always right. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Sell order assessment fee not included. A limited number of ETFs are subject to a transaction-based service fee of $100. See full list at fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And welcome, everyone. I'm Kelly Evans. And we do have a rare obsession on Wall Street today, but not without plenty of drama. The Dow fell more than 700 points at the lows. We've rallied more than 500 at the highs, and we're up 219 right now. Tech, interestingly enough, is the big driver of today's move higher. Uh, Take a look right now. The S&P, for the Dow, that's a 1% gain. S&P, a little less than that. But the Nasdaq, up 2.8%, and also uh, rebounding strongly today. And we just heard Jeff Curry of Goldman's thoughts on this. Uh, Oil is up 21%, just under $25 a barrel after hitting the lowest level in almost two decades yesterday. Uh, That said, Wall Street, now not so uh, bullish, I should say, on earnings estimates. As you can see, now bracing for an earnings recession with predictions today that we'll see negative earnings growth for the entire first half of the year. Some call that an earnings recession. Let's get more on that, on these markets, and so much more with Bob Bassani, who's been kicked out of the New York Stock Exchange. Bob, but it's good to see you. And sitting uh, sitting at home, uh, missing the New York Stock Exchange. Hopefully we can get that back there as soon as possible. What's interesting about today is it looked like it was going to start out with a lot of heavy volatility, like we saw in the last few weeks. And the first 40 minutes, that's exactly what happened. But since then, since just after 10 o'clock Eastern time, markets have largely flattened out. And that's good because what everybody wants is boredom. We want a little quiet sideways action. There's still a lot of volatility uh, in some sectors and some big volume. Let me just show you the S&P 500. 2351, of course, uh, that was the uh, the old uh, 3251. That was the old, uh, uh, sorry, 2351. That was the old... Uh December 24th, 2018 low. Uh, that has not been breached on a closing basis, and that was the close there. So that's still holding up here. In terms of sectors, again, a little flatter. When, remember, we've seen days where we're seeing 7, 8, 9% moves on some, some sectors. But the S&P 500, you see up there. Corporate bonds, which has been down recently, that's a nine-year low. That's the LQD, that second line there, still down, but not as much. Crude's up Gold's up. Even the VIX is a little flatter. The VIX has flattened out in the last five days in the high 70s. I mean, that is very, very high, but it's not been as volatile moving around as much. A little bit quieter on that front. If you look at some of the Dow movers, even Boeing, which is down, what, 60 percent so far? Uh, that's even a little flatter. Chevron is up. Uh, American Express is doing nicely. United Technology uh, is is on the upside here. So the volatility, the intraday moves ever since uh, about 10, 15 Eastern time really quieted down a little bit. And I think all of us can use a, a few moments here where we catch our breath and figure out where things are going. I would to- note, Kelly, financials, materials and energy are the movers there. And there's your cyclical sectors. And interestingly, the weaker groups, we've sort of reversed today. So consumer staples and healthcare are lagging the overall markets. Kelly. All right, Bob, thanks so much. Bob Bassani. Uh, some breaking news from the Federal Reserve. Now, Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren speaking. Steve Leisman has those headlines for us. Steve, he's been a key person to listen to over the last several weeks. Yeah, exactly. And more key today, Kelly, as you know, I just got the phone with Eric Rosengren, the Boston Fed president. It's his bank that's in charge of this new money market uh, liquid liquidity fund that the Fed launched last night. Uh, and he'll be running it when it opens up on Monday. He said his hope is that this fund will restore confidence in the ability of money market funds to provide liquidity that really helps the economy move. The money goes into the money markets uh, and then they buy corporate paper. They buy all kinds of stuff that businesses need to keep running, as well as securing the investment of individual investors in those money markets. Uh, let me give you a, some bullet points of what he told me. He said he expects markets to stabilize as a result of all of these things the Fed has done in the next week or two. Two, the money market will backstop the Fed and should address what he calls dysfunction in the markets. And then I asked him what else the Fed could do. He said everything should be on the table. And I asked him about corporate buying and all kinds of things. He said everything should be on the table. Now, I asked him about his forecast for the economy. He said forecasting at this point, not really a great exercise. But here's some of the things he said over the phone about the outlook for the economy and unemployment. My expectation is that we will see the unemployment rate go up fairly substantially. So I think we're going to see uh, significantly more layoffs over the next week or two. 
with substantial problems in uh, uh, different markets, all kinds of credit markets. It's been a very busy day for the Fed. Let me just go through some of the things that they did today. Uh, they increased securities purchases. These are outright purchases of mortgage-backed and um, uh, treasuries by up to $75 billion today from 40 And they opened swap lines with nine foreign central banks. Kelly, uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's, that's not functioning right now, and the Fed is trying, I think, moving at record speed here to try to address those issues, and it's just going to take some time for them to unclog and unstrain these markets at this point. And, Steve, there, there's been so much creativity lately, not just about the different lending facilities at the Fed, but about the kind of assets they could buy. Yesterday we heard Julia Coronado suggest maybe they could buy municipal bonds, which are really trading poorly lately because state and local budgets are going to get stressed. Is anything off the table at this point? <laughs> Good question. Kelly, it's well to take a step back real quick and talk about the difference between this crisis and the last one. In the last crisis, the Federal Reserve lent to people who were essentially at fault for the problems they were having. The people coming to the Fed now, they're there through no fault of their own. And in this particular instance, the Treasury is providing $10 billion backstop, $10 billion backstops to three different funds. What does that mean? It means the Fed is probably, it may already be, but may eventually be, taking way more risk in the economy. Not, maybe not way more, but more risk in the economy through its lending than it did before. Last time the Fed was like, I'll take the risk, but I am not going to lose money here. Uh, you're going to pay me. This time, because they have that Treasury backstop, you could see the Fed be involved in a series of programs here where they take more of the risk to the economy from the virus. This is not yet, but it may well end up being a very different game for the Federal Reserve than it was last time. Yeah, and I have follow-on questions, which I'll direct to our next guest, Steve. So thank you for now. Uh, Steve Leisman having spoken with Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren. J.P. Morgan making some big headlines in the past 24 hours. The firm forecasting a pretty deep recession. Economists there see GDP down 4% in the first quarter, followed by down 14% in the second quarter before rebounding. Joining me now on the CNBC Newsline is Mike Faroli. He's the chief U.S. economist at J.P. Morgan. Mike, welcome. Uh, Listen, and the, the tweet I put out with your forecast yesterday, I think, has been retweeted thousands and thousands of times. Anything you, you want to clarify about this forecast uh, for starters? So I don't think we made very extreme assumptions to get to the numbers we got to. Uh, basically, this, the part of the economy that is exposed here, which is airlines, movie theaters, things of that nature, is around 7% of the economy. And we assume activity in, in uh, that part of the economy is depressed in March, April, and starts to recover in uh, in May. Uh, and that may uh, prove optimistic or pessimistic, That seems that, but that's what we're predicating our forecast on. And with that, uh, we get that big decline in, in second quarter growth. How much in terms uh, so, of government stimulus is priced into these forecasts, which both see the big decline in the first half and also a, a decent size, an 8% rebound in Q3? Yeah, so... Uh, Look, if, if these uh, activities come back online, uh, then we should see that alone should give us a lot of strength in the third quarter. Uh, again, that may prove optimistic or pessimistic. Uh, uh, we are assuming around a trillion dollars of fiscal stimulus, mo- hopefully most of it coming in the third quarter to to really ensure that the economy does pull out of this uh, uh, in good fashion. And that seems to be at least what we're going to get. So third quarter, in that though. Regard. Are you saying that? Well, we're, I don't know. Yeah, July. No, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're expecting a trillion dollars of fiscal stimulus. Got it. Hopefully, most of it will be concentrated in the third quarter because that one, it prob- when it, we think it would be most helpful, hmm. right? I mean, getting a lot of stimulus in place in March and April is probably m- won't matter if you can't leave your house, right? Mm-hmm. But we, we want to make sure that when the when the worst is passed, that the economy, you know, really comes back uh, with some vigor. Uh, and it does seem like, you know, given that a lot of the proposals have these uh, rebate checks, um, uh, which at least by historical experience usually gets paid out in two or three months, uh, that could help, you know, cement in place expectations of a summertime return to uh, uh, to better growth numbers. Two questions, Mike, that came up a lot yesterday. Uh, the first one is why bother making the forecast? And I think I know the answer. It's your job. But uh, again, is there and listen, you had a ton of caveats in this note, which are about nighty and uncertainty. And this just being a really tough time. So is there something to be said for chucking guidance altogether? Or do you feel like you can actually get a pretty good handle on what this hit is going to look like? Uh, I don't think we can get a good handle, but I think um, we can at least see under different assumptions for the, the 
the course of the virus, what that could mean for the economy. So we need to make assumptions about the course of the virus, about how, how this spills over into uh, defaults and things of that nature. But at least we can start to war game when we, when we think through uh, these things. So we're not totally in the dark as long as we understand that there are different pockets of uncertainty, uh, a lot of them epidemiological in nature. Exactly. Um, and, and look, I, I think from the Fed's perspective, so they shut their forecast. I think they may be in a little bit of a different boat because uh, I think, in, and Powell, I think, kind of alluded to this when he said it would be counterproductive. Uh, you know, if you put out some some uh, numbers that are realistic but, but quite downbeat uh, by an institution as respected as the Fed, that may reinforce some of the more yeah. um, cautionary behavior. You know, you guys uh, I obviously would have to adjust the numbers or we all would have to, to kind of take into account if coronavirus comes back in the fall or, or next year, that kind of thing. Like you said, this all relies on what happens with the virus. But in, in that context, one more question is this uh, kind of private figure that Steve Mnuchin had mentioned about unemployment in a worst case scenario reaching 20 or 25 percent. Is something like that feasible? And your current unemployment forecast only has us going a little bit over 6 percent in the middle of the year and then falling back to the fives by year end. Uh, yeah, so we have, un- that's right. Um, <clears throat> and given some of the anecdotes we've heard from some of the state labor offices uh, just this week, maybe that's optimistic, but that's based on a, a simple relation known as Oaken's rule, which, which uh, ties unemployment, changes in unemployment to GDP growth. So we're not uh, trying to make uh, too radical a statement in that regard. In terms of Mnuchin's uh, comments, um, you know, I think in this environment, nothing's off the table, but that seems pretty extreme. And and if I recall correctly, it was in a, the context of no policy response. And correct, you know, like yes. If the Fed didn't, if the Fed didn't respond earlier this week or, or throughout the week, if we didn't get any stimulus uh, or weren't expecting any stimulus, you know, I, I, you can't take that off the table. But that is uh, a pretty extreme. How big would the GDP had have to be to hit twenty percent unemployment? Fifty, sixty percent? I mean, yeah, it would. It, yes, it would be. Um, and it would need to be sustained, I think, over uh, probably a couple quarters. Wow. Mike, thanks for phoning in and uh, appreciate your, like you said, uh, adding a little bit of context around what we do know at this point. Sure thing. Good talking. Go Mike Faroli is the chief U.S. economist at J.P. Morgan. Central banks and governments have been announcing a raft of new measures to support these economies. But is it enough? Bridgewater Associates founder Ray Dalio expressed his doubts about that on Squawk Box. We estimate right now that the corporate losses would be in the vicinity of, um, in the U.S., about $4 trillion. Globally, probably about $12 trillion. $4 billion here, $12 trillion there. What more does need to be done? I am joined now by Kim Forrest, Chief Investment Officer at Boca Capital Partners, Nisha Patel, a Portfolio Manager at Eaton Vance, and Subhadra Rajapa is Head of U.S. Rate Strategy at Society General. Uh, great to have you here with so many uh, different pieces. You know, we've got equities, we've got rates, we've got munis. Uh, so, Kim, let me just start with you on equities. We are a little bit better footing today. What do you think is priced in in terms of expectations about how many trillions of support is on the way? Well, I think um, that the government, the U.S. government, and actually the governments around the world have said, look, we are going to throw the kitchen sink at this. And they are. It is very, very clear. And, um, uh, you know, this isn't like 2008 where there was a real tussle to get $850 million um, in uh, an aid package passed that, you know, we're all hearing the first 800, well, you know, that's quickly gone and we have to do more. The Fed, I mean, uh, the piece at the top of the hour with um, the Boston uh, Fed saying they're going to do whatever it takes. I think that is true. The thing is, is how long is this going to last? And um, none of us know, none of us. Mm-hmm. But I think it's pretty clear that support is going to be there. They don't want to have people wandering around with nothing to eat and nowhere, you know, getting kicked out of their houses. And that's, I think, the what everybody's kind of, uh, they don't want to have that happen, election year or not. It's just not what the government's supposed to do. Kim, are you changing your investments? Are you doing different things uh, here based on some of these dislocations or not? A little bit. So I'm always trying to go to where the growth is going to be. And I think that's themes like cloud computing. I think everybody probably is hooked up to the cloud if they're working from home. 
Um, 5G is still big, and you know, consumer behavior doesn't really change all that much once you get pay in your pocketbook. So those are kind of things that I do that I'm not changing. But what I am changing is is looking at the balance sheet first. Hmm. Who has money and who can sustain themselves through this bad time? That's what I'm asking. Okay, and uh, again, you know. I'm sure many companies thought they were in decent shape until being hit with with a real sudden stop like this. Speaking of which, Anisha, let me bring you in because there's a ton of concern about state and local budgets. Everything from stadium financing because you've had sports events canceled to, you know, quite simply how people are going to compensate for all all the different parts of the economy that are shut down. Muni bonds are trading terribly. I mean, relatively speaking, the yields are still pretty low on an absolute basis. I I mentioned off the top we've had people speculating about whether the Federal Reserve is is going to buy munis as part of its asset buying program. What would you say to investors in that asset class right now? Yeah, so, I mean, even a a relatively higher-grade asset class credit quality-wise, right, I mean, you still have a lot of cities and towns that are highly rated, um, haven't been immune from this. It really is kind of a liquidity crisis. So as you're seeing a lot of investors fleeing out of most other asset classes, we're seeing it be no different. However, what we are seeing now is if you take a step back, is you're seeing muni yields, you know, north of 100 basis points higher in a matter of two weeks. And so I think if you have an active manager that is doing the appropriate due diligence, that is being more conservative on the credit side, you almost want to look at this as an opportunity to even kind of leg in here, given that you can have taxable equivalent yields of north of 3.5% in kind of that 10-year part of the Nisha, do you uh, think that people will basically be able to get exposure to any part of the Muni universe and benefit from a government, from a federal government backstop? Or are there going to be winners and losers where they say, you know, we're not going to support the stadium financing project, but we are going to support, you know, the general bond or something? You know, so I actually kind of think of it as being a little bit of a flip side. So if they do kind of buy municipal bonds, it's possible they may uh, support the lower credit quality bond issuers, these esoteric projects, the stadium bonds, possibly certain airport bonds. These are kind of the higher yielding uh, kind of carrier bonds to begin with, if you will. Uh, but what I think the Fed should do and the government should do is provide some sort of a, a, a liquidity line individually to all of these states. Hmm. Now, the good news is, is that most of these major states, cities and towns are coming into this crisis, if you will, um, at much healthier balance sheets, much better liquidity than, we, than these states came into the 2008 era. Um, so that's the good news. But I think in the event that states need to back up certain in-state issuers, certain towns, they should have the ability to kind of use the government and that liquidity line if they need to do so. Okay, really, yeah, make a lot of great points there. So, uh, Subhadra, let me turn to you uh, on the rates piece of this, where I've had people saying to me, can you just explain what's going on with bond yields? You know, they plunged, then they went higher. The 30-year has been all over the place. Uh, is How would you characterize liquidity and, and fundamentals right now? So I never thought I would say this, but it's the lack of liquidity in the Treasury market. The largest, the most liquid bond market is experiencing a dearth of liquidity. Who would have thought? Hmm. Um, there's also a lot of other dynamics that are going on, position unwind, so people are are liquidating uh, treasuries and bonds uh, to hold cash. And uh, there's also the prospect of tangibly higher deficits over the coming years. Absolutely. So that's, again, another piece of information that the market is trying to digest. I'm not um, – I, I would like to de-emphasize the fact that I'm not a bond vigilante with the uh, Fed purchasing $700 uh, billion in uh, treasuries and mortgages. That should keep interest rates low. But, you know, that's definitely a consideration as well in the, in the market. And lastly, it's also people working from home. I mean, there's just a, a information asymmetry, if you ask me. And there's just not the same level of involvement. Dealer balance sheets are extraordinarily constrained. Hmm. And people are trying to work around these issues. So it, just to put a point on it, then you have, when people think about deficits, they think a lot more Treasury supply is coming. We've had rumors about, you know, 20 uh, and 50 year debt again today being issued. So you have people thinking a lot more supply is coming. Are they worried about inflation? I mean, are we seeing that as a concern, too, or is it more just ge- the general liquidity and supply problems? No, there's actually no con- concern over inflation because of the sharp drop in oil prices. What we've seen is real yields have risen very sharply. And inflation expectations have declined almost to the same levels or close to the levels we saw during the crisis. So we're looking at inflation expectations cratering and the bond market, um, you know, uh, starting to price in uh, the potential for more supply. And that's one of the reasons, and, and Kelly, you hit the nail on the head, is the reason why I don't think that 
yields will continue to rise because of the additional supply, because it's not an inflation story. This is more of a, a, a near-term dislocation in the market. All right. Well, we thank you all very much for joining me today. Subhadra Rajapa, Nisha Patel, and Kim Forrest. Well, let's get more detail on these stimulus plans that are working their way through Congress, shall we? New York Senator Chuck Schumer earlier saying that worker protections must be included in any bailouts of an industry. This as the president and the coronavirus team finished up their daily briefing. So for all the latest Washington headlines, let's turn to Kayla Tausche. Kayla? Hey, Kelly, the briefing today from the White House concerned mainly the public health dynamic of this crisis with the Food and Drug Administration saying that it was fast tracking um, some pre-approved drugs that treat malaria and Ebola for experimental use. Uh, The administrator of the FDA uh, did not speculate on exactly when they would be available for commercial use. And the administration also said that uh, several vaccines have entered clinical trials this week earlier than expected. And then there is the economic part of this crisis, Kelly. Uh, Of course, as there is some stability in the markets today, the politics of bailouts uh, are proving toxic yet again. Uh, The discussion on Capitol Hill continues as the House and the Senate and the Treasury Department try to craft a package that will make everyone happy and pass easily. And uh, President Trump was asked about potentially putting conditions in any stimulus package that would keep any company who receives government money from paying bonuses to executives and from buying back stock. Here's how President Trump responded. We don't want that. In fact, some companies, as you know, did stock buybacks, and I was never happy with that. Uh, It's very hard to uh, tell them not to, but I would tell them not to. I would say I don't like it for that reason. Some did, and it turned out that they could have waited a long time. It would have been much better off if they did. President Trump also said he supported one possible idea on the table for the government to uh, take out equity stakes in some of these troubled companies. But that's going to prove politically difficult as well, Kelly. You'll remember back in 2009, uh, the poster child of that was GM. The government took a 61 percent stake. But in a crisis like this, where the fallout is so widespread, where do you draw the line on who gets that injection and who doesn't? That's the difficult question facing the administration right now. Yeah, they should just buy the S&P 500. Just just the whole index, 10 percent of it. Kayla, thank you. We appreciate it. Kayla Tausch, she's in Washington. Let's turn to oil, uh, which is looking to rebound today after plunging to its lowest level yesterday since 2002. In fact, yesterday's 24 percent plunge was oil's third worst day on record, and it's now settled below the 200-day moving average for 40 straight sessions. Today, a rebound with oil spiking more than 20 percent on the session now, which would be its best day ever. But still, it's down 44 percent in March. Yep, you guessed it. That's its worst uh, worst month. So for more on where the price of oil could go next, I'm joined by Paul Sankey, who's managing director and oil and gas analyst at Mizuho. And our own Brian Sullivan is here with us as well. Brian, was it you or did someone else out there say oil could go negative? I thought I was focused on negative bond yields, now negative oil prices, too. It's possible. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's the high risk, you know, very low probability outcome, Kelly, but it's not out of the question. I mean, here's why. You've got to you've got to store it somewhere. We talked about this yesterday on your show. And if again, if all the storage tanks get full, it's possible. It's not probable. Nobody's saying this is the outcome. But if you've got oil and there's nowhere to put it, it's conceivable you might have to pay somebody to take it. By the way, pretty amazing. We're talking about a 22% jump in the price of oil to $24. Right, exactly. Paul, any thoughts on, on the prospect of, again, I, I, I only mention it if people in the market are speculating that this could happen, uh, prices going negative. It just tells us there's a huge supply-demand imbalance out there, right? That's correct. I mean, in fact, it was me that started it, and it's really something that we've seen with natural gas uh, actually this year at times in the Permian. And as Brian correctly says, uh, it's simply a question of when you don't have enough available inventory capacity to, to offtake, and that then the reality, the physical reality of oil, and having to deal with the sort of black viscous um, liquid that you need to put somewhere, uh, could conceivably take prices negative, particularly at the extremes of the chain. So, for example, in Canada, uh, or maybe in North Dakota, where you're further away from markets. So what do you do, Paul, with all of these stocks? Uh, We've seen, obviously, companies respond with a raft of different measures already. What more should we be bracing for? And does it all depend on how long this lasts? I think, you know, in my role as an analyst, we've been trying to put pressure on Saudi, to be honest, because I think that, you know, adding oil into this market isn't, isn't really what's needed, to say the least. 
and that may recover things. So we've been doing some fairly doomsday-type scenarios of what Q2 looks like if Saudi keeps pumping and if uh, we continue to have a rolling shutdown of the United States of America, which is the biggest oil market in the world. Uh, at, that, at that point, you get to very low prices. So we've been looking at uh, cash costs of production in the U.S., which are about $20 a barrel. Below that, obviously, you'll start shutting production. And in all of those scenarios, the best we've got is the future strip. Uh, and that, uh, as you know, is, is much higher in the future than it is currently, but it still looks very, very severe for the oil companies, to say the least. Um, they really will be loss-making in, in all scenarios as the price is now. Well, Brian, people have, as the concept of potentially having some kind of government backstop or bailout for oil and gas companies, before, before it can even get raised, the outrage, you know, flies. Um, should there be something, maybe not necessarily direct financial support, but should the U.S. government then do something geopolitically to pressure those other producers to try to keep that scenario Paul's describing from happening? I don't know, not for me to say, but there is a growing cry out there for a tariff on imported oil. I mean, hmm. uh, I don't know if it's a good idea or not. I'm just saying people are talking about it. Paul probably has a view on it. We're still importing a lot of oil from around the world, and there's a growing chorus saying, listen, the U.S. oil and gas industry should not get a bailout per se, but we're talking about simply backstopping people's jobs, making sure they have an income because they are going to get laid off. There's going to be a lot of layoffs. So there is kind of a growing chorus of let's tariff this imported oil, use that fund to directly help families. Again, no judgment. I'm just saying the talk is out there. And also, don't forget, talk about jobs in the economy. We, we were talking about all these liquefied natural gas projects. There's 20 some that are in some form of develop, either being built now, being projected to be built or being thought about it or been approved. Where are they going to go? Natural gas is at a buck seventy. Nobody's going to make money on that, and and that's a lot of jobs yeah. that the U.S. government and Texas were planning on. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, guys, thank you. We'll see if that tariff talk does go anywhere on oil. That's the second time now we're hearing that in the last couple of weeks. Brian Sullivan and Paul Sankey, we do appreciate it. And what we turn to Sue Herrera now for the very latest on the coronavirus pandemic as the number of uh, cases continues to rise. Sue? Indeed they do, Kelly. Uh, and the CDC just announcing a huge jump in U.S. coronavirus cases. It is now reporting 3,400 more cases than yesterday, raising the total above 10,500. The U.S. has now overtaken France and South Korea for total virus cases. Worldwide, there are now just short of 230,000 cases and more than 9,300 dead. Just moments ago, we also learned that Italy has passed China in total deaths at 3,405. New York's Governor Cuomo is blasting millennials partying on spring break in spite of the coronavirus outbreak. He says their behavior is irresponsible. These pictures of young people on beaches, these videos of young people saying, this is my spring break, you know, I'm out to party, this is my time to party. This is so unintelligent and reckless, I can't even begin uh, to express it. And as always, for more coronavirus coverage, you can head to CNBC.com. And we'll have more from that briefing in our next update. Kelly, back All right, to you. Sue, we'll see you then, Sue Herrera. Let's get you caught up on the markets right now, about half past the hour. But another pretty volatile day here with the Dow swinging more than 1,200 points. Right now it's up 126, so in the red, uh, green, I'm sorry, by two-thirds of a percent. S&P up a little more than half percent, 24.12. The Nasdaq is the leader today. It's up 2.7 percent. So as you can imagine, the Dow leaders include Dow, the chemicals company, McDonald's and Disney. Walgreens and Pfizer are the worst performers. Remember, Walgreens was one of the standout yesterday. Today, it's giving up nearly 9 percent. Some retailers are in the green. Capri Holdings, Williams-Sonoma, Kohl's and Lululemon are each seeing a rally of more than 11 percent. Uh, Williams-Sonoma is now up 20 percent today. Energy stocks are soaring, too, as oil rebounds. And uh, some of these gains, we have Noble, Apache, Devon Schlumberger, all up 11 to, in Noble's case, nearly 18 percent. And after a 21 percent drop yesterday for Uber and a 14 percent drop for Lyft, both of those stocks are on the rebound. Uber up 35 percent, Lyft up 28 percent. Why the turnaround in sentiment? Let's head to Deirdre Bosa for some answers for us. Deirdre, what's going on with these names? 
Well, Kelly, this is certainly some relief, but keep in mind that even with today's gains, both these stocks are still down about 50% year-to-date. So there is a long ways to go. However, they are popping today, as you pointed out, because there was an Uber analyst call this morning. CEO Dara Khosrow Shahi got on the phone with Uber's analysts and investors and said, listen, we are going to weather this storm. He said that even in the worst case scenario, which he described as an 80% plunge this year in gross bookings in the ride segment, he said that they would still have about $4 billion in available cash. That includes a $2 billion uh, short-term short-term credit facility. So you'll also see that Lyft shares are popping on this. The reason for that is a little bit less clear. These names do tend to move in lockstep. However, Dara Khosrow Shahi, Uber CEO, said that they're also seeing some growth in a lot of growth, he said, actually, in the Uber Eats, the food delivery business. And remember that Lyft only operates here in North America, where likely the worst of the coronavirus outbreak is still to come. So they will continue to see rides um, go down a lot. And plus, they also don't have that food delivery business. But as you mentioned, Kelly, both are just surging after losing a lot of market cap over the last few months. Deirdre, indeed they are. Uh, we appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa out west for us today. Uh, meantime, movie theater stocks are also soaring after the National Association of Theater Owners has called on Congress for a bailout. Uh, you can see their shares of Cinemark up 50 percent. Julia Borston has those details for us. Julia? That's right, Kelly. Last night, the National Association of Theater Owners asked Congress for a bailout, and movie theater stocks are rebounding on that news. Cinemark shares, as you mentioned, up 50%. This after they also reassured investors about the company's liquidity and its balance sheet last night in a call with investors. It is worth noting, though, that Cinemark shares are still down 70% for the year. IMAX shares are up about 40% today, still off about 50% this year. And AMC shares are up about 5% off about 64% this year. It is worth noting that AMC shares have been hit because that is the theater chain with the heaviest debt load. Now, this comes after the Theater Association said, quote, the business model of the movie theater industry is uniquely vulnerable in the present crisis. The bailout proposal includes loan guarantees and tax benefits now to support workers and measures after theaters reopen to enable them to recoup losses. This is all part of the theater industry's effort to protect their 150,000 employees. Kelly, back over to you. All right, uh, Julia, we appreciate it. Yet another piece of this story to keep our eye on as this moves through Washington. Coming up, New York City is preparing for a big patient influx, and they may turn to hotels for help. We'll get those details. Plus, restaurants are rebounding somewhat, with some names today of double digits. But the month-to-date numbers are still staggering, with many of these companies down more than 30 percent. We are going to speak with the CEO of Papa John's about what plans the company has to deal with the economic slowdown and with these cities shutting down across the country. Stay with us. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Shares of American Airlines down 11 percent right now. The CEO, Doug Parker, saying this is the worst crisis he's ever seen. He just spoke with Phil LeBeau a short time ago. Phil joins me now with more. Phil. Kelly, this was a sobering conversation. I've talked with Doug Parker a number of times over the years. Generally speaking, I find him to be a fairly optimistic CEO. But in this case, uh, it was pretty dire, the situation that he was painting. In fact, he says this is the worst crisis the airline industry has ever seen, far worse than after 9-11. Remember, the airlines were shut down for a couple of days after 9-11. And then for a long time, it was hard to see much momentum gathering. But eventually, over the course of a year, people started flying again. Well, one reason why he considers this far worse is that there is no indication we have seen the bottom in terms of demand. In fact, he says they're continuing to see increase in cancellations and bookings are just not there. So when you take a look at shares of American Airlines, the thing to keep in mind is they're not seeing a bottom. And by the way, this is not just with American. We're hearing this from all the airline executives. The $25 billion or the $50 billion in aid that is being uh, considered on Capitol Hill, which would include $25 billion in loans as well as $25 billion in grants to the airlines, 
Doug Parker believes that would be enough to sustain the airline industry for about six months if business conditions do not get any worse. And as I just mentioned, they see no indication that there is going to be a bottom in terms of demand. One last thing, no one in D.C., according to Doug Parker, has suggested that they stop flying, that you shut down the industry overall. As he pointed out to me, and he has in the past, once you do that, you run into a a multitude of issues for the industry in terms of pilots who have to meet certain levels of of training, positioning aircraft. It's not as simple as shutting it down and bringing it back up. But again, Kelly, I've talked to Doug Parker a number of times, and the sobering comments from him, when he said over and over, he said, far worse than 9-11. Worst, that he, worst thing he's ever seen in this industry. Jeez. And he's been in this industry, I think, now for about 30 years. And I feel turning to the autos, which now have the big three plants shut down for a few weeks. Tesla, of course, been under scrutiny for keeping that plant open yep. in California uh, for workers. Now we have an Alameda County spokesman saying that the city of Fremont is meeting with Tesla to discuss that lockdown order. Let me ask you this, because Elon Musk floated the idea that that factory could be used to produce ventilators or respirators if the medical system right. needed it. What about and we've the, heard that from other automakers as well. That's exactly what I was going to ask. If we have these plants shut down for a couple of weeks' time, I mean, is, is that feasible to repurpose them? Well, you wouldn't be repurposing them. And I've talked with executives at both Ford and General Motors, and they've offered and extended to the Trump administration, look, if we can help out with the manufacturing of ventilators, we would certainly like to. But in the case of Ford and General Motors, they're saying, look, if we have extra space within a facility and we have the expertise in manufacturing where we could assist in the manufacturing of ventilators, we would like to do so. They are not talking about retooling an assembly line that is building an SUV and now retooling it to build ventilators. Okay. Uh, Still, again, any little bit might help here. Uh, Phil, we appreciate it. Philibo in Chicago today. Speaking of Ford, suspensions of major firms' capital programs, you know, dividends, stock buybacks, they've been ratcheting up in the last 24 hours as companies trying to preserve funds. MGM Resorts was the early bird today making its announcement, I'm sorry, a week ago about a buyback suspension. The major banks did the same over the weekend, and now we have a flurry of notable firms all announcing buybacks and dividend suspensions in the last 24 hours. Marriott, Ford, Darden, Ross Stores. I just saw TJ Maxx is one of them. TJX, I should say, the parent company. Uh, many are expecting more of these types of announcements and upcoming earnings reports. Again, if not sooner, uh, one seems to be crossing every few minutes at this point. With coronavirus cases spiking in New York City and hotel visits plummeting, city officials are eyeing all of those empty beds for sick people. Contessa Brewer joins me now with those grim details. Contessa? Yeah, they're trying to figure out how they come up with all the empty beds they think they're going to need for this outbreak, Kelly. So for one thing, the mayor has ordered hospitals to expedite the discharges of patients. He said all elective surgeries have to be canceled. And then we need to find beds. We're going to reopen hospitals that have been closed. We're going to find them in cafeterias or in parking lots and put up tents if necessary. We also know that the city is talking to the Javits Center, which is the big conference facility in New York City that normally is hosting massive conferences right now about functioning as a hospital. The U.S. Navy ship, the Comfort, is heading here in April. That will bring some beds. But also they think they can get, oh, about 1,300 beds by going to the hotels that have seen plummeting occupancy and using some hotel beds for sick people. Now, these would not be contagious coronavirus patients, but these would be people who need some level of medical care for other conditions, but that they could be housed in hotels. And then some of the medical corps that they're bringing on, 9,000 reserve medical corps, these are maybe retired doctors and nurses and social workers could then go into the hotels and treat some of these other people. Uh, We know where I'm standing here in lower Manhattan at New York Presbyterian Hospital. There are six hotels within just a couple blocks. At least two of them already are housing health care workers who are coming in to do their jobs. They also, hotels around the city are being used to quarantine and isolate city workers who can't go home. Now the question is, how much could they be called into demand to house patients? Kelly? It's fascinating that this is already underway, like you said, to help the healthcare workers. Contessa, thanks. Contessa Brewer is in Manhattan for yeah. us today. Coming up, Papa John's has had to shut down restaurants in China during the outbreak there. And now it could be deja vu right here at home. The CEO joins us next with how his company is preparing for the worst. And as we head to break, take a look at the ITB. That's the home construction ETF, which has gotten shellacked lately. It's up 4% and on pace for its best day since 2009. Lennar Executive Chair Stuart Miller saying on their earnings call, the company is still selling homes and they're offering drive-through closings. We're back in two.
Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Welcome back. Restaurant and fast food stocks have been hit hard amid coronavirus shutdowns. Just look at these month-to-date losses. You have Wendy's down 50%. Today, a little bit of a bounce back. Kate Rogers joins me now with more on that. Kate. Hey, Kelly, that's right. We're seeing names rally today, including Starbucks, Shake Shack, Domino's, Chipotle, and McDonald's. Casual names like Darden, Red Robin, and Brinker are also making big comebacks, even as nearly 30 states have limited restaurants now to delivery or takeout. And the National Restaurant Association is projecting $225 billion in lost sales over the next three months. Among the biggest gainers today, though, is Papa John's. It's up about 25 percent. The company has its own delivery fleet. It also works with major aggregators from DoorDash to Uber Eats. Papa John's CEO. Rob Lynch joins us now. Rob, thank you for being here. Hi, Kate. Thank you for having me. So talk to us about how business has been since the virus outbreak and if you've had to make any changes to how Papa John's is delivering to customers right now. You know, the pizza delivery business is uniquely set up to persevere through these challenging times. Uh, We are focused on delivering safe food and creating safe jobs, which are going to help our communities stay safe. We've taken some extra precautionary measures on sanitizing our restaurants so we can make sure that our employees remain safe. We're also implementing contactless delivery, which will allow our delivery uh, employees to deliver pizza to customers without ever coming in contact with them. Uh, So, you know, we're doing everything we can to make sure that we're creating safe environments, and it's critical right now because we're serving a very valuable uh, role in the community as we as we all work to get through these times. So, Rob, delivery and takeout obviously are the two major ways that customers can now access food from restaurants. Domino's put out a big press release today announcing it's really staffing up. Are you looking to create even more jobs as demand continues to rise? We are hiring big time. We need great employees. Our restaurants are, are uh, ready to uh, recruit and train and staff to um, meet the expected oncoming demand that is going that we're looking at as a result of um, some of the other food options being closed down. I mean, I feel terrible for my um, peers in the in the in the restaurant industry that have dining uh, room restaurants, but we're going to try and uh, pick up that slack and make sure that all of all of America's customers have access to safe, high quality food during these challenging times. I was tweeting that out, Rob, uh, to make sure people are aware uh, if they're looking for uh, for that right now. I, I just wanted to ask you what happens. There's a lot of different plans under evaluation by local governments, uh, the extent to which they might shut down in place or, or lock things down more than they are right now. Are you concerned that at some point your delivery service would be interrupted or can all of your workers, can all of us count on this continuing to remain open, do you think? That is not what we saw um, internationally, and frankly, a lot, a lot of us were on a call with the president and Secretary Mnuchin uh, on Tuesday where they highlighted how critical it is to maintain um, the food supply to, our, to America's customers, America's um, citizens during this challenging times, and they called out specifically the f- how much support they were giving uh, behind drive-through, takeout, and delivery. And as you know, I mean, our pizza business is set up and and has been set up to deliver in that way for for years. So we're experts at it. Uh, As I mentioned, we are taking extra precautions to make sure that we are as safe as we can possibly be for our employees, our potential new employees as we staff up dramatically, and for our customers. Rob, you had to close some stores in China and Korea as all this was going on. Can you talk about some of the biggest lessons that the company learned in doing business there and how you're applying that here in the United States as this continues to evolve? You know, the business model is is different across the globe. In China, the restaurants that we closed were primarily restaurants that were located in shopping malls and other facilities that were closed. So we were we were forced to close those down. In the in the in China and South Korea, 
where we have a much bigger delivery footprint, much more consistent with what we have here in the United States. We did not have to shut down those restaurants, and we were able to significantly help out by continuing to serve um, customers in, in those geographies where they're serviced by the delivery model, which is very consistent with what we have in the United States. And as we know, the, the situation, of course, does continue to evolve. If closures are forced here in the United States, what's the game plan to help franchisees and employees? You know, we're always working with our franchisees to um, make, you know, help, help them as, as much as we possibly can. Uh, we have just implemented in our company restaurants a uh, 14-day pay policy for employees that have to stay home for um, health issues, and we're working with our franchisees to make sure that they're taking care of their employees as well. Okay, Rob, we are going to leave it right there. We thank you so much for calling in during this important time for the industry. Thank you very much, Kate. Yeah, great stuff, Kate. Really appreciate it. Kate Rogers uh, bringing us the CEO of Papa John's, who says that he is hiring and doesn't expect any interruption in their business. Could be good news to a lot of people who are stuck at home or looking for a little extra work or income right now. Well, details of a massive trillion-dollar stimulus package by the federal government are still in flux, and although the deal isn't done yet, many included, expected to include direct payments to American citizens. Joining me right now is Marty Musi. He's CEO of Paychecks, which has offered its services to produce checks for this crisis and once created and distributed nearly 300,000 checks for the victims of Hurricane Katrina on behalf of the American Red Cross. Marty, it's great to have you. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Can I ask before we move on, what, the, the, your stock is the worst in the NASDAQ today. Any particular, I, don't, I know it's not, why even ask? I mean, this market has been so crazy, yeah. but, you know, do you have any insight as to what's going on there? No, I really don't. You know, we were, uh, we were down a little bit yesterday and, and then ended up. And, uh, and, you know, we have a very strong business model. We're up and running completely uh, we have about 90% of our employees working from home and still providing great service. And uh, we have great cash position. So, uh, no, I'm really not sure. You yeah. know, when you look at that, you, it's not really based on too much of anything at this point. I Absolutely. Don't and like I said, you know, it's a caveat to try to read too much into any of the moves when there's a financial panic yeah. basically going on. Uh, so we turn to you yeah. on, on the subject of maybe how to fix that. You know, that we heard the government yesterday saying they want to get uh, money to Americans as quickly and efficiently as possible. Secretary Mnuchin said, look, the IRS has a lot of names and addresses. We could use that. He said we're also looking to payroll providers. Uh, how quickly could paychecks get cash from the government uh, to people? Yeah, I think we could do it very quickly. You know, we move uh, hundreds of millions of dollars every evening uh, and every all day when we're transferring payroll funds and 401k trading funds and so forth. And I think we did it with Katrina. We got money to the victims for the Red Cross very quickly, as you mentioned. Uh, we could do this very quickly, and I think we're well set up to do it. We know how to move money through the system, and, uh, and we know how to do it very efficiently and quickly and get it in the right hands. We also do it through, you know, direct deposit into banks, of course, paper checks if that's needed, pay cards, uh, you name it. And we also now have a pay-on-demand service, which allows people, if they earn eight hours today, that they can get paid tonight if they want to do it. So uh, we're very well set up from a money transfer position, uh, I think. Is this something you're in active discussions with the government about doing? There, there is some discussions. I think right now they're leaning a little bit more toward the IRS to do it, but we certainly have offered our services uh, to say that we are available. You know, we have over 670,000 clients have been in business for over four decades. And uh, and I think we're, you know, we're always ready to offer our services to anything that the government needs. It's a great private and government partnership, uh, private business and government partnership that we could help on. Right. And it's also good to have you here, Marty, because we this morning learned the jobless claims number had, of course, spiked a lot higher last week. Uh, since you guys have this window into what's going on uh, with hiring and firing, can you give us any granular data about, uh, you know, what it's like out there? Yeah, well, it's it's pretty early, but obviously I think most uh, of our clients and, you know, small and mid-sized businesses and all businesses, frankly, uh, whether they're clients or not, are feeling the pressure of this. I think the biggest thing that uh, that can be done by the government, a lot of steps they're already taking, which is get money into the small business in particular. Small business drives America. And I think if we get more money into small businesses quicker, and this is through waiving the FICA on the employer side, that gives them immediate cash flow, additional cash through the low interest or no interest loans. We've heard, obviously, that one of the proposals is covering six weeks worth of pay for your employees as a small business. Hopefully that gets approved. 
These are things that we want to keep small businesses from going out of business. And if the government can do that quickly, there's even a job sharing discussion where keep your employees on instead of laying one off and keeping one, let them job share and unemployment insurance may help pick up the difference. So there's a lot of good creative government ideas going on now and steps they're taking. You got to keep small businesses in business, give them the cash flow they need up front, give them a loan. Whatever they need to do to keep people working will be really important. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have people calling you up right now saying, how do I stop, you know, paychecks from going out or, or, or you know, in other words, with, the, with those kinds of business interruption issues already? Uh, you do see some. We haven't had too much yet. Uh, and and uh, so we haven't seen too much. I think they're trying to wait and see what kind of support that they're going to get from the government because there's so much going on. You know, also, when you stay with paychecks as a client, we're going to be able to help you through paying the sick time, paying uh, extended parental leave, helping you with unemployment insurance and how to file for that. And we have HR, you know, we provide HR services with over 600 HR specialists across the country um, that'll provide you and help whether you need to furlough, layoff. How can I help you keep people like this job sharing idea? So I think we're very well positioned if you stay with a company like us to help you through this very fast changing state and federal regulations that are going on so that you get the most out of it and you have a good shot of staying in business. So final question, Marty, what would be the relative advantage of going with the payroll providers as opposed to the IRS or vice versa? Well, I think I think both would probably be able to work well because both know how to move money very quickly and get it into the right hands. Payroll providers, you know, we're, we're doing it all the time. Every night, as I said, we're moving hundreds of millions of dollars through the banking system very efficiently and effectively uh, and very safely and securely. So I think we would be a very strong player for that. Uh, I think all we need is the data. We could set it up quite quickly. Um, I'm sure the IRS could do it uh, as well. So we're ready and able to help out as, as, if the government needs us. All right, Marty, thanks for joining me today and explaining this to us. Thank you, Marty Mushi is the CEO of Paychex. And speaking of employment, some information out of New York today that could be a harbinger of things to come. The state telling us that its Department of Labor website is averaging 250,000 logins per day. That's a 400 percent increase over the normal. They're seeing a 1,000 percent increase in claims in some areas across the state. On average, they receive about 10,000 calls a day. But on Tuesday, they had over 75,000 calls. And to address this increase, they've added more than 700 staff members to address the influx. So they're like Papa John's, perhaps a, a place where people are adding a couple of jobs. Anyhow, you've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.